Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit. Just by way of context, Jesus has been crucified, and we're about to read here of, in John's Gospel, one of the four narrative accounts of Jesus' life, the first resurrection appearance of the living Lord. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, She said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went, and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Friends, this is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, would you give us your Holy Spirit now as we engage your scriptures once again? Would we come into true contact and communion with you? Thank you for your inspired word for us. And not only, Spirit, did you inspire the writing of the scripture, but we need you spirit for the hearing and understanding of the scripture as well. Thank you, O Lord, that every part of the scriptures leads us to and culminates in Jesus crucified and resurrected for us and for the world. And what a joy to encounter specifically a resurrection appearance of Jesus here this morning. Lord, would we encounter him, we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. In the earlier version of this sermon, I began by saying that, thinking about television sitcoms, that the golden age of TV sitcoms has passed. They don't make them like they used to. The more I think about it, I don't think that's true. If you go back and watch some sitcoms from the 80s and 90s, many of them just are not funny at all. And there's long stretches of, like, I think these are supposed to be jokes, but the the batting average of jokes that are landing is really, really low. Comedies have actually gotten better. However, when it comes to theme songs and title sequences, they don't make them like they used to. And so there are so many shows, whether comedies or dramas, that don't have theme songs anymore, that don't have title sequences. But how's this for a classic TV sitcom theme song? It was actually revived by Applebee's, of all places, earlier this year. And it's Cheers, 
How many of you know the Cheers theme song? And some of you right now are thinking, for the love of all that is sacred, Jim, do not sing a little bit of that song right now. Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. Bum, bum, bum. And they're always glad you came. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> I've been inclined. Bum, bum, bum. And the song goes from there. But it's a great sentiment. Sometimes you want to go where everyone knows your name. And they're glad you came. So the song is a little bit cheesy. It's also a little bit catchy. But it's also a little bit true. We want to go to a place like that. Do you have one? Do you have a place like that? That place where you want to go, where people know your name, where you feel loved where you feel known. Maybe it's a real place. Maybe it's an imagined place. But where you can go and just be you. You can relax and let your hair down. If your name is Jim Anger, people will say, hey, Jim, or whatever your name is. But the tricky part is that in reality, it sure seems like we don't have a lot of those places. Maybe you had some of those places before, but you don't have them anymore. They're, they're, they're gone. Even at the level of something like a watering hole, my all-time favorite place around here, I was driving with one of my kids past Central Taco over here on Haddon Avenue, talking about Central Taco, and I'm like, you should have seen Central Taco when it was the Irish Mile. And Liberty Old Timers, many of us have spent time together at the Irish Mile. It was a wonderful place. I haven't found another one like it but at a deeper level, that place where you want to go. Maybe it was your home. Maybe it was your growing up, at least for some of us. But what's that old title of the Thomas Wolfe book? You Can't Go Home Again? Or even better, there's a Bruce Springsteen song from 1982's Nebraska, My Father's House, where Bruce, who has a famously, in real life, problematic relationship with his dad, the protagonist in the song has a dream that he's going back through the forest to the house that he grew up in to try to reconnect with his father. The punchline of the song is that he goes to the door, stranger opens it and says, I'm sorry, son, but no one by that name lives here anymore. So we've lost connection. And truly, how many people know your name? How many people know you? We live in an age of deep anonymity in so many ways. So when we hear the Cheers theme song, whether we're looking it up on YouTube, I don't know if Cheers is on any of the standard streaming services at this point. If you're watching sports and you see the Applebee's commercial, the Cheers theme song, you want to go where everybody knows your name, it works as nostalgia. It works as longing. But the little bit scary thought is, what if that's all it is and nothing more? What if we don't actually have a place like that? And if that's true, life might seem a little hard, a little rough. And we're living in a world right now, in a fractured cultural moment, 
where are those safe places? Few and far between. But here this morning, in the verses that I read, for you here in the room and watching online, we get a glimpse of the place that is the place where you're known by name by the living Lord, by the risen Jesus of Nazareth. Interestingly, on the surface, ostensibly, this is a place of death. The character Mary Magdalene, who had been one of the followers of Jesus, is at the place where Jesus was buried. So, so far, as we confess in our Apostles' Creed every Sunday, Jesus has been crucified, he died, and this is where he's been buried. So on the surface, it looks like a place of death, but it's not. This place is the place, the place of life, a place of goodness. Echoes of the original garden, both where we've been and where we're going. A paradise regained. And perhaps it's the case that Mary hears the one word above all others that at this moment she needs to hear. Her own name. Mary. And at least for Mary, and surely more generally, the tectonic plates, the ground movements of the very cosmos shift. And so whether here in the room or we're joining us online, the question for us all here this morning is, from this garden, will you hear Jesus naming and calling you? And, as we long for a place like this to exist, we're called to build it in the here and now. So two parts from here as we go through, this is really one of my favorite stories in all of the Gospels, and actually probably one of the lesser known resurrection accounts of Jesus towards the end of the Gospels and at the beginning of the book of Acts. We'll go through the story in two parts from here, a place and a name. So we encounter Mary Magdalene, like I mentioned, one of the followers of Jesus, a place. Verse 11, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And thus far, at the beginning of John chapter 20, Jesus has been crucified, died, and was buried. It's she and the apostle Peter and also the apostle John who wrote this gospel. They go to the tomb at the beginning of John chapter 20. They see that it's empty. They're freaking out. And Peter and John split the scene, but Mary lingers here. We're not sure why. Maybe she just can't let Jesus go. Maybe she wants to care for his body. Maybe she just wants to be close for a little while longer. The story is told of my grandmother, Grandma Jessie, whose husband, my dad's dad, died when he was eight years old, tragically. And it was the practice in Western Pennsylvania in the mid-20th century. I don't know if it's the practice more broadly, but after my grandfather, whom I never met, had died and he was embalmed and placed in a casket, the body and the casket were put at home for three days. And the story goes that Grandma Jessie did not leave the room in which her husband was laid for three days. Wanted to be as close as possible for as long as possible. 
So Mary here is lingering, and startlingly, something new begins to happen. Verse 12. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And then astonishingly, the one that had died, the one in whom no blood nor oxygen had coursed for three days, Jesus of Nazareth, crucified, appears. Verse 14. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And for generations, readers of the story also wonder, why didn't Mary recognize Jesus in these moments? We don't know for sure. Maybe it was still dark. This is probably before dawn. Maybe Jesus was unbloodied. Maybe Jesus being alive was so far outside of the realm of possible expectation from Mary that it was just completely off our radar. Who knows? Maybe other reasons, maybe some of these, maybe all of these. But the conversation progresses in a very evocative way. Verse 15. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And this is a key detail coming up. Supposing him to be the gardener. And commentators have said about this gardener, it's a telling detail. It's not random. It's no coincidence that Jesus here by Mary is mistaken as the carpenter, as opposed to the cable guy, or the pizza dude, that would not have had the same significance. Jesus is the gardener. A garden, a good place, a whole place, a safe place, a beautiful place. And if Jesus, in the fulfillment of all of God's good covenant promises to us and to the world, has promised a garden world, a garden cosmos to come? Couldn't you say that truly, par excellence, Jesus is the gardener? And we have here the place, that good place, that garden, that paradise that is coming back. The hand is tipped, the place returns. And isn't it the case that for many of us, for most of us, Certainly throughout the ages, certainly ancient people, we have this nostalgia for a better place somewhere in the past. That cheers like place. We want to go there where we're known and loved and cared for. As I interpret the biblical story, those are genuinely echoes of our first place, the Garden of Eden. It was real. And interestingly, north, south, east, west, if you look at ancient cultures around the world, the narrative for where human beings have come from, even apart from ancient Israel, are strikingly different than the narratives we have today. The narratives today, we come from nothing and nowhere, a bunch of muck that's worthless, purposeless, meaningless, going nowhere nests. But the ancient narratives around the world say, we remember distantly, way back, a better place. We haven't come up from nothing, but we've descended from something, something good, something royal, something divine. And in Jesus, that's the place that's making a comeback. 
And this garden here is not only an echo of the first garden, but it's a foretaste of what's to come. We've been talking in Genesis sermon series and also encounters with Jesus. It's God's person with his people and his presence in his place. It's all coming back together. And culturally speaking, when we think about heaven, it might be this wispy by and by that may not have any real existence whatsoever in any way, shape, or form. But the biblical story says that heaven, really the new heavens and new earth, the renewed creation will be every bit as real and solid as everything that we can hear and see and touch today. It's a physical place. The British scholar in the mid-20th century, C.S. Lewis, said this about heaven. Heaven is not merely a state of spirit, but a state of body as well. Therefore, a state of nature as a whole. We say every Sunday, we believe in the resurrection of the body. So the biblical story, the gospel story, the good news of Jesus crucified and resurrected from beginning to end, Genesis, the beginning, Revelation to the end, truly is a story of paradise lost and paradise regained. Jesus is bringing it all back. For all of the broken, fragmented, messy pieces of our existence, Jesus is getting the creation band back together by the kingdom of God and the power of his Holy Spirit, and it's going to be great. And doesn't that confirm with us, whether we're here listening as somebody who's skeptical of spiritual realities or committed to the Christian story, isn't there a taboo buzzer in us where we hear, well, there's nothing more than this. We go, eh, this can't be it. There's got to be more. There's got to be more. David Foster Wallace, a recently deceased author that I really like, not a person of faith, but seemed like he was occasionally close, wrestling with pointlessness of the human condition against the promises of God. Wrote, the horrific struggle to establish a human self results in a self whose humanity is inseparable from that horrific struggle, that our endless and impossible journey towards home is in fact our home. DFW saying here, what if, all what if all we've got is a struggle? What if all that we have is a horrific journey to nowhere? But if that's all it is, if there's not really a destination even, I'm not sure you can really call that a journey. And I know it's in the cultural drinking water. It's not about the journey. It's about the destination. I get the sentiment behind that. But if there's no destination, it's not a journey. It's a wandering. It's a meaningless meandering that's going nowhere. And if you're skeptical of spiritual realities, I would gently encourage you to look that reality in the eye and ask truly how livable it is. One author put it this way about looking into the abyss. If we all knew what was coming, maybe we wouldn't even stick around for it. To me, that's honest. But we keep looking for this place, this place that we want to go, this place where people know our name. And sometimes we do find things that fit for a little while, but it's only for a little while. They're temporary harbors or false harbors, not the real deal. Various situations. For example, how many of you have ever, and this is certainly not all of us, but some of you, I got my dream job. It's perfect. But then it turns out not to be. I got my dream house or my dream apartment. 
but it has problems. I got my dream relationship, but all of a sudden everything isn't perfect. We're not living happily ever after. We need to work at it. Or I have the perfect amount of money in my bank account. I am not going to worry about finances ever again. I've said that. And it's very wrong. Those are all false harbors. Those are not true homes. But we keep searching anyway. And intriguingly to me, even for those of us in our lives that at every stage of our lives have had very little, because we're wired in the image of God, even for us, we think and we believe that there is more for us out there, something more durable, something better, something safer, something more whole. Last reference at this stage, Rebecca West, Black Lamb, Gray Falcon, a travel log of the Balkans in the early 20th century, Serbia, Croatia, and on and on, said at one point in her travel log, as she spent time among extremely poor people who have only known war and hardship and poverty and hunger forever, she says, even these folks, even these friends, know that there is something better. The poor have at the back of their sunken eyes a shining picture of wealth. The sick know what it is to be sound. And as the unhappy weep, the scent of happiness dilates their nostrils. As we weep, the scent of happiness yet fills us. But it's hard to get to that place. And part of the problem of not having a place like that is that I am part of the problem. How many times have you had a good situation, a good setup, but you've done your own part to wreck it, to make it less good? Like, wow, this was really going swimmingly until I inserted too much of myself into this situation. And now it's not as good anymore. What was it, Groucho Marx? It said something like, I'm never going to be part of an organization that would accept me as a member. That's human sin right there. That's absolutely true. We mess things up. And don't things in our world feel so broken right now. And this is a time of deep anxiousness and anxiety and anger culturally. And for us as a church, we have a broad spectrum of people, just like the first 12 disciples. You see, Jesus with the 12 disciples, there was Matthew, the tax collector, working for the man, the occupying nation, Rome, oppressing Israel, and Simon the Zealot. The Zealots were anarchists that were going to go to any lengths to overthrow Rome and expel the foreign occupier. They're on the same team. And even for the Church of Jesus Christ around the world, even if we're anxious and angry about different things, at the very least, we can be united in our pain and seek to love each other through that. Because we mess up place. But in Jesus, the gardener, the great shepherd of the sheep, there is a place to come that will be perfect and to which we can give our allegiance and citizenship in a way that no place on earth will ever be. Because the best is still yet to come. The gardener there is a morning of a new dawn of creation that's coming. Like another old song says, 
Someday I don't know when, but we're going to get to that place where we really want to go. And we'll walk in the sun. The place is coming. And then also a name. And yes, Mary, at this point still, doesn't know exactly what's going on. Of course, she's sad, brokenhearted, incredulous, and of course she is. Verse 15, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. But then everything moves. Everything changes. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Not just any Jesus, but the very recently resurrected Jesus of Nazareth, the Lord of life and light, calls Mary's name. And she replies with Rabboni, which probably is what she called him. In this ostensible place of death, light and life breaks in God's place. Everything changes. Everything is different. As Mary hears Jesus call her the one that she loves, the one to whom she has given her life, the one for whom she has lost everything, Mary. I love doing weddings. There's also a lot of pressure, so, but, it, but, it, but I really love doing weddings. And the pressure part, real quick, is, and I've, I've done many of your weddings. I've loved doing all of them. Unless it was your wedding, you don't think about other wedding ceremonies and say, oh, that was a really great wedding. Or like, man, that wedding ceremony was really good. You don't remember any good wedding ceremonies, do you, except your own. But you sure remember bad wedding ceremonies when things went totally wrong. That's why I feel pressure at weddings. So I feel pressure, and I love them. And towards the end of the service, when there is the naming, that's one of my favorite parts of the service for two reasons. The ceremony's coming for a landing. I think it's going to be okay. But then also, there's something profound. I take you, Robert. I take you, Natalie. There is a singularity of that naming in that moment. And to this day, nobody calls me Jim like my wife Emily, whether in affection or exasperation. There's a singularity to it. And all the more in the ancient world, to name the name is to possess the person. Names were so much more important back then. To name the name is to be in deep communion with the person. Mary, Rabboni. Just imagine. And this is the good news of the Christian story once again. If you come to Jesus by faith, you are named all the way into this place because of what Jesus has done. What happens at the end? That's a question that every human being that ever has lived and ever will live must answer. What happens? And at least in my mind, one of the reasons, and I don't want to overstate this, but we're so fragile right now as a culture, 
is because there's no hope of anything beyond now. And if this is all we've got, all of our chips are pushed into the middle of the table at this moment. And it could all fall apart at any second. But what if there is a place to come that's not shadowy, that's not scary, but in Christ it is solid? Came across recently a conception of what's to come, and it's strikingly sad to me. Thinking of life after death, this author says, thinking about what it could be like, I will say tree, not pine tree. I will say flower, not persithia. I will see birds, many birds flying in four directions. Then rock and cloud will be lost. Spring will be lost. And most terribly, your name will be lost. I will revel revel in a world no longer particular, a world made vague as if by fog. You'll see me there out on the horizon, an old gray thing. And don't get me wrong, there are aspects of the scriptures, the Christian story, that are deeply challenging for folks right now, including me, which is has been the case throughout all the ages, north, south, east, and west. There's always going to be parts that are challenging, and that's okay. That's even good. But to me, this is a part where I'm able to tell my skeptical friends and neighbors and say, the Christian hope is so much fuller and better, where we can get to that place where we really want to go, where everyone knows our name, and it's not just gray dissipation at best all the way down but there is a new heavens and a new earth to come. It's not shades of gray everywhere, but the Apostle Paul says in the first chapter of his letter to the Ephesians, for he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. For God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And Jesus himself says earlier in John's gospel, before his crucifixion and resurrection, speaking of himself as a shepherd, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. If you're wrestling with spiritual realities, would you yet ask the questioner, let me ask you. Both throughout this life and after, who will know your name? Who will know your name? And it's not just a naming, but it's also an embracing. I love how at the beginning of verse 17, Jesus tells Mary, not in a scolding way at all, I believe, but do not cling to me. Upshot? Have you ever started hugging somebody and you don't realize that you're actually hugging the person? When it's like, oh, I guess we're we're (laughs) hugging right now. This is how I picture what Mary is doing. As this conversation is unfolding, I don't recognize you. Are you the gardener? Tell me where Jesus is. I would love to go take care of the body. Mary, Rabboni. And by that moment, she's holding on to her Lord. It's an embrace. And that's how good the gospel is. The author of this gospel, John, begins his first letter saying, we've seen it, we've touched it. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning this word of life, that which we have seen and heard, and John very well could have added, that whom we have embraced, we proclaim to you also. 
and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ. Do you hear Jesus' call? Do you hear Jesus' naming of you? What voice will you serve? There are a lot of voices out there. None of them are as good as Jesus. Voices that say, for example, just a couple of for instances, you are how you look. You are what you achieve. You are what your bank account says that you are. You are where you're educated. You are where you're vacationing. You are whatever your perfect life view is or political view is. And there are things in all of those to which we should strive, but if they're ultimate for you, those are voices that are going to take from you. But Jesus' voice, the one that says Mary and calls you by name, that is the voice that gives and forgives. You see, it's a gracious naming. The same voice that called out Mary a little bit earlier, three days earlier on the cross, said it is finished. Let me pay the penalty for your sin. Let me make satisfaction for the guilt of sin before our Heavenly Father that you can be absolved of all of it. Let me take all of that burden upon myself so that every tear will be wiped away. Two quick upshots and then we'll close. Hearing this naming from Jesus, coming and living under him by faith, it relativizes your weeping. World is broken, life is still really hard, we still weep. And Jesus doesn't, the gospel overall doesn't say, hey, just stop it. Jesus, earlier on, in John's gospel, sees death and himself weeps at it, at the tomb of Lazarus. We weep now, but it's no coincidence that the same author of John's gospel not only wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, but also Revelation, who says when we get to the end, when the new heavens and new earth arrive, our Heavenly Father will wipe away every tear from every eye. And I can barely believe that this is true, but I ask that the Spirit would give me faith to believe it. There are painful things in your life, shameful things in your life, at least for me, maybe for you too, that you can't even think about for a second without being flooded all over again. Right? To me, I think that heaven is going to be so good that in a miraculous way, we can think about those same painful and shameful things and truly weep no more. It's like the old gospel song. Oh Mary, don't you weep. And isn't this voice from Jesus worthy of our obedience and being transformed? And also we have work to do. Just like Mary did. As the story concludes, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. We have mission work to do. Our mission statement, living, speaking, and serving, is the very presence of Jesus. If you claim this hope, speak of it. Speak of it. And we talk, we're in the dog days of summer right now. Things downshift. We relax a little bit. It's a perfect time when people have a little bit more margin, a little bit more bandwidth 
maybe to hear from you about Jesus. Maybe that's, well, that's actually part of why we keep getting stupid union tickets. I mean, there's nothing, I mean, it's great. Sports <laughs> is great. It's really good, and I don't mean that in a, I don't mean that negative way at all. I, I love sports. Go sports. But, you know, should churches get, be involved with like getting tickets to a sporting event? I say absolutely yes, because it's a great way not only for us to have some fun with each other, but then also like invite a friend and neighbor. And maybe you have friends and neighbors and loved ones where invitation to Sunday morning makes sense. Maybe you have others. Invitation to Saturday night is just an easy win. It's mission season. To whom is the Lord sending you? And also we want to speak as the very presence of Jesus, but live and serve. And this is it. A couple verses after this in John's Gospel. To the disciples he says, Peace be with you. Even as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Through his crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus says, I have bought by my blood a place of peace, and as the Father has sent me to do that, you go and do the same thing. We're on this broken, sometimes feeling like a God-forsaken rock spinning through the universe. Could there be a place where we're known and loved? Where we can be ourselves, where we can relax, where we can let our hair down, where we can be called by name? the church. And so we're called to make it that way. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.